art, innovation, and curation. The three tentpoles of the arts organization Pigment International. This is A Black Canvas, focusing on innovation in black culture with your host, Pigment International founder Patricia Andrews Keenan. Artist Carrie James Marshall has said, you have to demonstrate that black is richer than it appears to be, that it is not just darkness, but a color. Here on the Black Canvas podcast, we explore that richness with black artists, collectors, curators, and others in the black art ecosystem. Take a listen. Joining us for our first podcast are artists, technologists, and leading crypto and NFT strategist, Israel Wilson, Janice Bond, cultural architect, art advisor, and interdisciplinary artist, and the co-founder and CEO of Art World Learning, Dexter Wimbley, also the founder of the Hayama Residency. Multi-hyphenates all. Thank you for joining us. We welcome you to the conversation. Follow us on social media and visit pigmentintl.com. At Pigment, we believe black is the presence of all color. I'm very excited about this conversation today because we're talking a lot about art, but also about innovation in the arts. So uh, I think we have some really great guests and we're excited to talk to. When we joined Clubhouse in December of last year, we spent a lot of time listening to conversations, following some of the artists on Clubhouse and some of the relationships that we made on Clubhouse are what we're bringing today. And uh, the panel that we have here reflects people we've met on Clubhouse, people we've known for a long time in the art world, and people that we met recently. And I would say all of them are what I would call multi-hyphenates. They're artists, curators, innovators, collectors, and I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Uh, one of our great friends that we met on Clubhouse this year was the artist and uh, technologist, I would call him, Israel Wilson. Israel, would you say hi to the audience? Yeah, my name's Israel Wilson. I'm an artist and technologist. Been working in biz dev for the last decade, but I've been a crypto person since its inception for the last 12 years. And now suddenly as my my world is, a, uh, I've been an artist my whole life, never able to express that. And suddenly all of those things have converged uh, to put me in a really great position at this time. Actually, I'm on my way to New York right now for uh, a crypto event with Kadena uh, for Masari uh, mainnet. But yeah, so I work with uh, blockchain companies to expand their ecosystems. I advise artists on the NFT space, um, and, I'm, and, and I'm glad that I have my own art to utilize as a form of expression. Thank you for the time. Oh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I think we got a couple of people in the airport today. The next person I'd like to introduce is Janice Bond. She's another multi-hyphenate, an artist, a curator, a cultural historian. She's founded organizations and is currently the deputy director at the Contemporary Arts Museum in Houston, Texas. Uh, she spent many years, about 13 years here in Chicago, and uh, we became good friends here, and we've kept in touch through the founding of Pigment, and she has been really, um, really instrumental in, in helping me spread the word about the organization and some of the things we're doing. So, uh, Janice, would you introduce yourself? So first, you know, as, as Patricia mentioned, it's uh, a number of different things, you know, that I've been doing in the art world for some time, but really I think of it as the same three things in a number of different ways. It's arts, culture, and community. And so whether it's been um, from being an artist myself, have my own studio practice, um, my studio is still in Chicago um, at Mana Contemporary, um, or my curatorial practice um, with various clients. Um, right now, um, my company, Abon Creative Advisors, has um, the curatorial contract for the August Wilson African American Cultural Center, of which um, in October we'll be showing um, an exhibition that Dexter curated 
um, from um, Derek Adams. And so we're really excited about that. Um, but most recently, I was uh, the deputy director of the Contemporary Arts Museum of Houston. And now I'm working with them uh, more strategically in a contract capacity as the engagement and experience consultant. And so, you know, again, arts, culture, community, whether it's technology or on the ground, um, you know, it's my world and I'm excited to be in it. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Janice. Uh, I want to introduce one of our teammates, uh, V. Harrison. V. has been a writer for some of our publications, and we have multiple publications, both online and we have a printed magazine, Pigment International. What you see in my profile picture is a cover of our latest magazine. So please check us out on all of our sites on Instagram, Clubhouse, Facebook, uh, YouTube as well. So I wanted to introduce V. I am so happy to be among all these brilliant minds. I am an artist, but of words. As Patricia mentioned, I am a journalist and a contributor for Pigment Magazine and International. I am excited to be among, again, brilliant minds. And I've been an artist my entire life, but only stick figures when it comes to the drawing and creating. I am indeed a lover of words. I've been writing with Patricia for a few months now, and she can't get rid of me. Pigment is a wonderful organization, and I love the ability to showcase other Black artists and give voices to those who really need it. So I'm happy to be spending my Sunday afternoon with you all, and thanks for the folks who have joined. Thank you, V. And uh, I'd also like to lastly introduce our speaker, Dexter Wimberly, who I just met through Janice Bond. Uh, he's the CEO of Art World Conference. He's a curator and he has a residency called the Hayama, and please correct me if I if I don't have that correct, in Japan. And they just announced their first class of um folks coming in for the residency. So Dexter, it's amazing to have you here. And please tell us a little bit more about you and what you've been doing. Uh, I moved to Japan in May. I'm an American curator, African-American, um, who has spent the past uh, 15 years working in the art world, um, not only as a curator, but as you mentioned, um, I launched a company a few years ago called Art World Conference, which has since evolved into um, another entity called Art World Learning. It's an online education platform for visual artists, designers, and cultural producers. Um, the residency that you mentioned, you did you did get the pronunciation correct. It's Hayama Artist Residency. Um, Hayama is a small town on the Pacific Coast in Japan, which is where I live now, um, and um, the residency, the first cohort of artists will come next June. Um, obviously, we've been um, navigating travel because of the pandemic uh, the same way everyone else on this call certainly has. Um, I'm just happy to be here. Um, I have a lot of questions um, and uh, I'm very, very um, honored to be uh, participating. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to open this conversation with Israel because, again, Israel was one of the first people that I heard his clubhouse conversations, and they were so engaging and they were so animated. Um, Israel refers to himself first as an artist and then a technologist. And when you look at his profile, you'll see that he spent a lot of years in the digital realm. So Israel, I wanted you to talk a little bit, what came first? Was it the artistic side or the digital side? Because for me, you are probably a perfect combination of both a left and a right brain person. I've been an artist my entire life, but I never saw art as a means of sustaining myself. I grew up, uh, um, and not to go too much into it, but I, but I, but my life was tumultuous. My youth, my young life, and my early adult life was tumultuous. And I never, I've never, I never had a safety net. You know, a lot of people they might, they may have parents that that, that do certain things for them, buy them shoes, or they might. I never, never had that. So art was just something that I always did since a kid. I got my first commission, I think, when I was seven years old. And later on in life, people commissioned me to draw faces, draw their relatives. And so I was always using it as a form of expression, but never saw it as a career um, until this until NFTs, until I, I sold my first NFT. And so the art thing came first and then technology. I've always been interested in technology. 
I'm a student of sci-fi. I, I grew up in at the at the beginning of the computer of this this level, the personal computer age, and so I so computers and technology have always been a part of my life. And as when when I was in, I was found myself at Rutgers in 2007 was my freshman year, and we were we began going through this economic crisis of the Bush presidency, and then leading and then Obama comes into office and immediately. He's hurdled with all these problems that have already been created. And we had and, and so we dealt with this, the, the housing crisis and all of these different things right at that time as I'm studying Africana studies and political science. And I'm realizing it's like the news. It's the economy, stupid, that the, the economy is really the problem. We need we need to change the economy. And so I was in these groups on Reddit and on different websites talking about an alternate economy is it going to be silver based no no we can't do that because that's a, what what about we have what if we begin to exchange our hours so we so we form communities and begin to exchange our hours with digital representations called ripples like ripple in, ripples in time i think ripple stole you know took that name of that community and utilized it later on and so um so then technology kind of came into my life full force um, when the Bitcoin mainnet came online in 2008 and 2009 uh, or, in, or in 2009, in 2009, I attempted to launch a Facebook platform that paid people in Bitcoin. Bitcoin didn't yet have a price and social media wasn't yet validated. I, I, I remember getting a B minus for a paper in which I wrote that Facebook would one day be, one day be worth a billion dollars. And the professor circled it and said Twitter hasn't even monetized that this was a bogus assertion and um and later on now facebook is worth a trillion dollars so for me i've always been an artist and i but with with technology i my everyone mentions it to me that serially from netflix to paypal to square cash before it came cash app to coinbase i've worked for all of these different companies as a as a referral agent because they have referral programs and i've been push and I push them day one. I see things that it takes others a long time to, they're trying to figure things out and I just see things. And so Bitcoin being that, that's, that's kind of taken over my life. Um, people have me programmed in their phone as Bitcoin. Um, the Mexicans that work on, uh, that work for the tree crews and stuff like that around my neighborhood and I've worked with, I've been telling them about Bitcoin for the last nine years at least. So it's everyone knows me as that, that person that told them the first time about Bitcoin, attempted to explain it to them. And now um, I, I can, I, from that native perspective, not in, I'm not an investor. I'm not, in no way am I investing in this. This is not an investment. This is an alternative. And my, my, my foresight in seeing that alternative combined with the frustration that um that I couldn't push that alternative on my community and really solve some deep problems that our community has with the with the wealth cap we could have immediate in the la- over the last 12 years black americans and the african diaspora had an opportunity to completely change our situation by making a choice and i just i just want to be the person uh one of the people that helps people understand the choices that they have in the next in the next 12 years and that's what really uh, keep, continues to feed my, my fire as far as technology goes. But in that, I also realized that suddenly I had a sudden realization. I, so I started the crypto conversation on Clubhouse. There were no crypto rooms because no one could really offer a significant viewpoint and there couldn't have, be long engaging conversations just talking about price. They, all those conversations that developed talking about price, they've dwindled now. And so we had these these deep conversations about crypto began to have some really big rooms. And then people from those rooms went and started their own crypto rooms and people from the crypto community. They started to come on the clubhouse and utilize it in that fashion. At that point, I became kind of frustrated with these circular conversations that don't really lead us anywhere or push us in a positive direction. They're just either 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 explanations of very small things that people could Google or conversations about people's opinions that aren't really fact based. And so I and so I went into these art rooms and in the art rooms, 
I realized that these were my peers, that I that this was my this was my safe haven. And so that that understanding has, has been a very recent understanding of mine that that, yes, I am an artist and um, and that, that everything else that I do, pro- like you said, probably has a lot to do. The reason that I can see things the way that I see them as an artist, you've got to see it in your head before you can bring it to life. And I, 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 I could I attribute maybe my my level of imagination to my artistic ability. And there's nothing more satisfying than the act of creation for me and in seeing it. And so whether it's a rap or whether I'm making music or whether I'm uh, creating something digitally, the the act of creation, the activity of creation is the same thing that pushed it, that, that feeds me in business and has allowed me to be a success at business is because I want to make things. I, I see things as they aren't. Art and technology allow us to do both. Next, I'd like to go to Janice. Uh, Janice has worked with multiple organizations across the country. Uh, as I told the audience earlier, she spent quite a bit of time here in Chicago. But I'd like you to talk about the organizations you work with, how you find them, how do you connect with them. And I know for you, talking about uh, Black women it, it is the thread that has kind of moved through your career from my, from what I see of your work. And I want you to talk about that a little bit as well. The organizations plus this elevation of black women in all that you do. Well, thank you, Patricia. I mean, ultimately for myself, I consider myself to be an evolutionary player is it's really with the different organizations that I've worked with, you know, most recently, um, again, Contemporary Arts Museum Houston um, evolved from a full-time position to a contract um, for engagement and experience. Um, August was an African-American cultural center. You know, there are several others, you know, Houston Arts Alliance. And, it, you know, really, for me, I like to really put different muscles or keep different muscles in shape. And so for some of my contracts, you know, it's more so curatorial. You know, some may be really more so about, you know, engagement and, you know, civic or social practice. And others, you know, one is specifically, you know, project management for a number of public art projects um, in a major airport system. And so, again, it's, it's, there are a, a flurry of different things, but they all keep, you know, my mind in shape. And what I, what I like that is because you get a true sense of the arts ecosystem overall. It's not just one particular area. You know, it's not just one particular, you know, market or demographic. You're able to get a pretty good landscape. And with that, you're also able to see how one part of the ecosystem affects the other. Um, Black women and Black people um, have been a center of my work because I believe that the most important thing is not to diversify um, whiteness, but decentralize it in the conversation about arts, culture, and community overall. And it's not to be exclusive, but more so to give um, communities and individuals and artists that have pre-existing value the opportunity to shine and or to see themselves. And so, you know, that may be work um, that may be for a client, again, as curatorial, um, even myself as a collector, or even in service, you know, most proudly recently, um, artist Sonia Henderson, based in Chicago, Illinois, um, she started something called a Mother's Healing Circle um, alongside an Envisioning Justice Grant with Illinois Humanities Council. And last year, or year before, we started working together uh, and we expanded the Mother's Healing Circle, which is arts-based, uh, arts-based services, activities, events, and direct support uh, for women, Black women, particularly in Lawndale and Chicago, Illinois, who's lost children to violence. And so we figured out how to utilize art as well as, you know, creating a circle of support for these women. And it's really been beautiful. And so when you ask, like, how do I find these opportunities? Really, majority of the time they find me. A majority of my work is, you know, by referral. Um, I really speak a lot um, in different spaces, but also really just offer my support, mentorship, and volunteer where I can um, to just continue to spread the information, you know, that's necessary. Again, the biggest part of my work is not about any singular project. 
but really more so about getting people to really to really get excited about not just having one thing happen well for them or in one particular area, but looking at the arts ecosystem as a whole, including communities or individuals that may not consider themselves artists yet. Very good. Uh, and Pigment International, we talk about the art ecosystem. And for us, it's artists, collectors, curators, entrepreneurs. So I really appreciate how you move throughout that system and, and have impact everywhere you go, Janet. So thank you so much. Uh, Dexter, I don't, I, I am just blown away. I mean, you are a world citizen. You are active in so many places and marketing and and uh, communications and curation. Boy, I, I couldn't even, where are you from? <laughs> when I look at you, I just kind of see a world view. So tell us a little bit about where you came from, how you started and, and how you've been able to make such an impact. I'm just totally blown away by the work that you've done over your career. Well, I appreciate those kind words. Um, and, and the question you're asking me is actually a question I ask myself probably every few days. <laughs> like, where did I come from? Um, well, um, to give you the short version of a long story, um, I'm originally from uh, Brooklyn. I was born and raised in Bedford-Stuyvesant. And uh, I, uh, I grew up with an interest in entertainment and fashion, um, art kind of tangentially, but not really as any sort of like career path. And uh, I went to Brooklyn Tech High School, Brooklyn College, and um, at some point in the uh, mid-90s, I decided that I wanted to um, take a different perspective on my life and what had originally been an interest in um, potentially going to law school and becoming an attorney um, kind of changed into more of an entrepreneurial um, interest because I'd been influenced by some of the entrepreneurs in my life um, growing up, my uncles, my aunts, my mother even to some extent. And um, because I had this latent interest in entertainment and fashion, I decided to start a, a agency, a, a marketing and PR agency in 1995 that was focused on those kinds of clients. And that company, over the course of... Uh, about a decade or so grew from me and a business partner in one room with an idea to having, you know, a staff of about a half dozen people and clients like Coca-Cola and Time Warner and HBO and you know, Adidas America and a bunch of other um, companies that were interested in tapping into youth culture. And, you know, I ran that business with my partner, Barney, for about 13 years total. And during that time, I started meeting a lot of fantastic creative people who were actually, um, you know, folks who had gone and gotten their MFA from some very prestigious schools around the country, but they weren't actually working in the space that they intended to. So, you know, you'd be on a fashion shoot with a photographer who actually wanted to be a fine art photographer. Maybe they got a degree from RISD or Yale or Otis or School of the Art Institute Chicago, but, you know, they couldn't find a pathway to use that degree to pay the bills and to eat. And that kind of theme played itself out over and over and over again. And for me, someone who always looked, um, to, to Israel's point, someone who always looked forward and looked ahead, not in terms of where things were, but where they were going, I really saw an opportunity um, for myself in the art space as someone who could help artists not only get shows and, and opportunities um, for people to see their work, but to also connect the dots on the business side of their career. Um, I didn't exactly have a clear path to do this. Um, and also, I didn't have a background in art history. So for me, I had to take a two-pronged approach. And one was uh, to be a self-starter and decide that I was going to do this, even though I had no safety net and no real clarity in terms of exactly how it would pan out but then also educate myself in this space. And educating myself meant um, taking, um, you know, sort of a, a route of humility. And what I mean by that is I had already been running my own business for over a decade, but I decided that if I was going to work in the art world in the way that I wanted to, I needed to actually educate myself. And that meant working at different places as an employee. Um, no harm in that, no shame in that. And it was actually one of the best decisions I ever made because, about a decade ago, I took a position at the Museum for African Art in New York City as a director of communications. Uh, it was a position I was able to take because I had a communications background. But that experience, followed by um, working at another organization called um, 
Independent Curators International a few years after that um, as a uh, director of strategic planning. These positions really gave me a better perspective on how the art world functions um, because I had to interact not only with curators and artists, but with donors and publicists and writers and collectors and everyone sort of in the art world ecosystem. And uh, while doing that, I was um, still building my uh, curatorial practice. And a moment on that is that for me, curating began as an opportunity um, to see behind the veil um, without having much experience in in that space. Again, going back nearly 15 years ago, um, I knew that if I was going to be a successful curator, I had to bring all of my tools to bear. And that was everything that I knew about uh, planning and communications and um, <laughs> diplomacy. And uh, and it was going to be a way for me to accelerate this goal I had and that, that the goal of giving artists opportunities. So the, the curatorial path initially started off as a way for me to open doors, not just for myself, but for the artists that I knew and respected and, and wanted to see flourish. And over time, it kind of evolved into its own thing. And so I went from someone who was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be, you know, great novel to be a curator to having the, you know, knock wood, you know, great opportunity to curate exhibitions at museums and galleries, you know, truly around the world. I've done shows in New York and L.A. and Japan and Dubai. Um, and there's still a lot of other great things on the horizon. But, you know, as they say, enough about me. Um, what I'm really <laughs> interested in um, exploring in today's conversation, I know we don't have a tremendous amount of time, but, you know, a few things that Israel said really stood out to me. And that's this sort of like looking ahead um, and, and taking leaps of faith. Um, I think that for a lot of us, and when I say us, to be clear, I'm, I'm, I'm not just talking about people working in the art world. And frankly, I'm not even just talking about African-Americans or, or black people in general. I just mean a lot of us who are in this this space in the world where we see what we want, but we don't quite have it and we don't quite know how we're going to get it. Um, a lot of us are afraid to take leaps of faith, uh, but it's the leap of faith that really is the only way you're going to, um, you know, kind of grab that that brass ring or gold ring or whatever it is you want to call it. And a lot of the times we are so distracted by our day-to-day um, limitations, and that connects to something else Israel said around this sort of like, you know, wealth gap, right? People who are in survival mode, and particularly in the art world, I've noticed this, people who are in survival mode find it very difficult to think big. And so I'll, I'll wrap up to say that um, part of my goal um, as a curator, as a, as a founder of a business um, that, you know, um, works with dozens and dozens of people and, and pays them, thankfully. Um, I'm very interested in how technology and how culture can be better leveraged by people who are in a position where they're creating this. They're, they're creating culture. They're, they're, they're enhancing technology, yet not benefiting from the financial repercussions of those things. And so I'm very, very interested in propelling that and making sure that people understand their power and giving them access to the tools they need um, to, to achieve their goals. Thank you so much, Dexter. And I, I greatly identify with that being an autodidact. And um, I come out of the same background as you. I come out of communications and marketing and I wanted to take that and apply it to the arts, and that's where pigment grew from. So I love how you talk about taking the skills you have in your life and applying them to the life you want to have. And um, I think that's important. Uh, you know, reinvention, reinvention all the time is good for all of us. Pigment International's Black Canvas podcast is sponsored by Sun Fun You Mediterranean Voyages. Join Sun Fun You for a week yachting through the Mediterranean, learning about the art and culture of the region, and playing in the sea. For a relaxing vacation a world away, visit sunfunyou.com and sign up for a voyage next summer. So to get back to Israel, um, in reading your bio, you talk about shifting culture into the future intentionally. And you talk the mission of your organization is to help disadvantaged communities understand the importance of these new 
cryptocurrency technologies. Can you talk about how you do that and how you've been educating people? And help us as well, because uh, I think the cryptocurrencies, I've written about it for clients and I've, I've researched it, but I have not acted upon it for me personally. And I would love to know, how do you help people do that? Um, yeah, my, my goal my goal in life, my life's mission, uh, I got I it down to one sentence. I want to create environments in which all types of genius can thrive. So when when I've been what I've done as of late during the pandemic is created those environments in virtual spaces like this or Twitter spaces or congregating with people on Zoom Um and I, I contribute my my knowledge to a plethora of different types of conversations. Uh, the specific one that's most interesting to me right now is um, our, uh, where I believe we have uh, as as a, as a people, African Americans, um, the most influence is over entertainment and sports. So what I've been doing as of late is educating the entertainment world. I'm on a call every Friday with, with a ton of music veterans that have, that have put, uh, that have made the history that we've seen through hip hop happen. And as well have a, a, uh, different conversations with individual athletes and athletic organizations, colleges, and attempts to try to get them to understand this. My next stage, which has kind of been delayed due to the pandemic, is I, I want to teach the youth about blockchain, allow them to deploy their own blockchains, teach them how to mint a token. And during that process, help them understand what value is because they've been they, they don't understand what value is. So they think believe money is valuable. And once I can if I can really get that message to to, to children and have them really clearly see what a valuable thing is versus a, a, a thing that doesn't have value, that lacks value, then they'll begin to understand that that dollars lack value, but that they each, each other have a tremendous amount of value. Um, I've been approved by uh, TechCrunch and A16Z to teach crypto startup school through them. Tonight, the event that I'm going to um, is the J.P. Morgan. People have launched a blockchain called the Cadena Block. They left J.P. Morgan and they're launching a Cadena blockchain. Um, and I, they want me to apply for a grant to begin to educate people on the Cadena blockchain. And that's the, that's the though. And there's a lot of other companies that want me at my help expanding their ecosystem. And I'm going to utilize the funds and the the force of these companies to create events and spaces that allow people to engage with these things in a real way because programming just like art is a form of wizardry if you when you're done with it you know you've done something and i've seen the looks on kids faces and i felt the feeling of accomplishment that it feels to spin up and deploy your first site or or create your first painting or sell your first piece of art and I just want to create those experiences in the youth um, and, and hope that it, hopefully it spills over. That's my my uh, my outlook is I spend a lot of time attempting to get my community. I've, I've been all across this country, literally in communities, explaining this and talking about this or even showing the proof that, hey, there was this thing that was worth nothing. We became worth a dollar. Then we became worth more than silver. Then we became worth more than gold. And and now any and now the the we're historically the hot, the best performing asset in the history of this planet, globally dispersed and unable to be stopped by any um, outside entity, government or any force or factor. That's a sudden apparent change historically in the history of humanity. And so my, my, my uh, position shifting culture in the future intentionally is actually an acronym. It's sci-fi shifting culture into the future intentionally. I, um, I want to be able to allow people to take advantage of this technology right now, while we're still in a level of comfort so that when robots and AI 
take the majority of jobs or we hit another economic downturn that those people who have chosen to place themselves ahead of that are in a better position um, through that crisis and coming out of that crisis because it's, it's very, in all likelihood, it's imminent. Israel, you make me think of something I say to people all the time. When we look at how AI has taken over most of the work that's, you know, that has been repetitive um, and putting people out of work, the one thing I think creativity does for us is you can't just replicate creativity. I think that's going to be one of the last places uh, that you can't take that away from us and and understanding that you know now they're practicing creating art using ai but i think that's one of the last bastions of 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 where we can stand as as individuals in the creative space what would you say about that oh definitely and this piece that you see right here is ai i'm an ai artist i've been using ai in my art for the last three years um in different aspects whether it be um, a generative art or whether I use AI to color or stylize my my photos. This is actually a piece with a new t- piece of technology called a VQ Gannon clip, but still the, the computer will never know what looks awesome. They'll never, or, or I don't foresee in any time soon them having a level. So your taste now is now it becomes a curation, a practice of curation. What is your taste? What looks good to you? And, and we're special in that in in that understanding of what we like or what others may like and a, a computer can't um reach into it into itself and try to gain new understanding we are the most powerful computers on the planet a human the human mind the human brain is the most powerful computer it of other things other than the actual task we're using it at the same time to breathe to pump our heart to feel the, all the points of our skin, our nervous system, all these different things. So that 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 amazing machine that we have on our shoulders is what's gonna is what separates us still from whatever is invented. We're just better. Right. Thank you. And Janice, I mean, you've seen, you've been on the inside in a lot of different spaces. Now you've been in the museum world, in the entrepreneur world, in the nonprofit world. What are you seeing and how is technology uh, changing the art world as we know it today? Well, it's interesting. Um, I was just listening to Israel a bit and it, it made me pose a question based upon what I'm seeing is that there is a lot of movement um, perhaps not specifically with blockchain, and I'm really excited about everything that you're working on, um, Israel. What I'm thinking about is there's a lot of movement towards um, the youth, as it should be. I also am interested in figuring out how we can close the gap on both sides. You know, like, I would love for people in various communities that are still, I mean, there's still a digital divide you know, there's still an equitable access to technology. And we saw that overall. And we saw that so terribly um, last year when so many children um, had to, you know, attend virtual school. You know, we still have cities, major cities that, um, you know, are still lacking some areas of public space uh, for wireless access, you know, that alone. So I'm just wondering, you know, what are the foundational gaps that, you know, how soon and what can we do collectively and where does art fall in to start to close those gaps? You know, is it public art pieces that double as, you know, Wi-Fi centers or, or learning kiosks or, you know, what is it that can be done to close the gap both not from the, both from the children or youth aspects, but also just anyone who wants to be educated and may have limited access to technology or the resources to be able to propel themselves forward? Um, I see that technology itself, you know, it's one of those things like, it's like the weather forecast. It's like, you know, you could say that it's going to rain outside and you could choose whether or not you want to go outside with an umbrella. But if it rains, it's just going to rain and it doesn't matter who you are. And with technology, the way I see it affecting the art world right now is that it really is, it's not even just affecting, it's just evolving. You know, 
are the art world itself and nonprofit world as in the business world. I mean, the world itself is just becoming more and more tech-based and people's experiences are being curated uh, and mapped out by these various forms of technology, depending on your mobile advice and how technology-driven or um, educated you are, you are able to engage with the world in various layers you know, through AI you know, in this present moment. So I see it continuing to go in that direction. Um, I'm really more interested or alongside that, very interested in seeing how we can you know, quickly, effectively, and authentically um, engage communities through art and education um, to close those gaps on both sides. Thank you. Um, Dexter, uh, I wanted you to tell the audience a little bit more about the Hayama residency, how it came to be. And in light of this conversation, do you does technology play a part in what you're doing and bringing artists to Japan? Thanks. I mean, I, I think um, um, <clears throat> to answer the second question first, I think um, technology has um, become such a critical part of my day-to-day -day existence as an entrepreneur in the art space. Um, the residency really <laughs> was something that I had been thinking about doing for years, um, just to give a little bit of background. Um, I've been married uh, for, it'll be 10 years come next May. My wife happens to be Japanese. Um, I have four children, three, three with my wife who speak both English and Japanese. They're uh, four, five, and six years old, relatively speaking. So, um, you know, it, it's a little, it's a little uh, crazy in my house in morning. So I'm happy that I was able to get up super early for this call because in about an hour, as they say, all hell's going to break loose. Um, but um, last year at the uh, beginning of the pandemic, we were visiting Japan um, on our annual trip uh, just to see family and, um, you know, get some time away. And, and we were unable to leave because flights have been canceled and I'm sure other people experienced a similar situation where, you know, the world was one way in February and then it was completely a different way in March. And so our four week trip here became a three month stay. And during those three months, um, basically March through June of last year, I had a lot of time to think about um, some of the short term and long term goals that I had set for myself. And one of the short term uh, goals was to launch this residency. And um, so I just used uh, I used the time at, at my disposal and to your to your, you know, another part of your question, technology. I was able to in less than, you know, 30 days, take my idea and bring it to life, build a website, build a social media presence, put together a selection committee, um, partner with a gallery in Tokyo, basically uh, using using Zoom and my phone and my computer to in a way, in a way, build a business, if you want to call it a business, build a business from scratch in 30 days, right? And um, the reason I ref refer to the residency as a business is because I think that it's important for me, um, and I try to, you know, lead by example, it's important for me to think about the things that I do in my life in a very sort of like serious way, and not serious as in I'm not having fun with them, but serious as in uh, they matter, they have repercussions. And I know that there's always a, you know, for every, for every cause, there's an effect. And so the residency was my way of thinking about how I could bridge um, cultures um, because I've been coming to Japan um, pretty frequently for the past, actually longer than I've been married. I've been coming to Japan since the late nineties. Um, it's a place that for me, um, I have uh, grown to be familiar with, but I know for a lot of my friends and colleagues, it's a place of great mystery um, or a, a place of distant inspiration. Um, so many um, artists I know are inspired by different aspects of um, Japanese culture, whether it's ceramics or printmaking or just thinking about the, the culture in terms of food and, and music and all of those kinds of things. And so I've had the, uh, the opportunity to immerse myself in those aspects of Japanese culture. And I figured that launching a residency um, could be a way to extend that to artists who would like to do the same. Um, it's, a new, it's a new venture. Um, I've been able to um, manage a lot of it um, on my own, although I do have folks that work with me on, on the digital side and social media. 
Um, and I also collaborated with the Newark Museum of Art. Um, and we're going to do some programming next year um, and sort of connect Newark Museum with different cultural institutions here in Japan. But, you know, what's really at the heart of it is that um, I think that artists are often put in a position where they don't have time to just stop and think. And I know that um, being away from home and in a, in a different place, moving at a different speed can sometimes unlock creativity in a way that we're just unable to do when we're just kind of like uh, on the grind, so to speak. And so it's, it's a beautiful experiment to see what a residency of this nature, which basically gives um, at, at this point two artists a year an opportunity to spend four weeks in Japan um, and have all their expenses covered and they can make art or not make art, but they will have an exhibition at a gallery in Tokyo during their stay um, to see what comes out of that. And hopefully I'm able to grow this into something that can happen multiple times a year and be extended to dozens and dozens of artists. I, I live here now, so um, I have a lot more um, perspective um, on, on what this could actually grow into. Well, congratulations. Um, I, I, it's very exciting. And we are spreading the word in Chicago. I've sent something to a couple of artists since I first talked with you. So I'm hoping they will take advantage of that. Um, you make me think of a term. I, I just learned this term last year, and it's called uh, kintsuji, the golden joinery, how you take mm -hmm. something that's broken and you repair it and turn it into something beautiful. So um, I think you've taken 2020, which was definitely broken and turned it into something that's going to be meaningful for a lot of people. So thank you. That's the story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, I believe Veronica, you might have a question for the audience, uh, for the panelists. I love to, I was wondering you all, you know, as a journalist and as, someone who covered last year's uh, rioting that was happening all over the nation after the murder of our beloved George Floyd and others. You know, journalists and artists are looking to change the narrative. And for anyone who's wanting to take this question, I'm wondering how are you all committed to changing the narrative with your art for young people and future generations and legacies? Anyone can take that. I'd love to hear from any of you. I would like to change the, I think the, the narrative of the starving artist has suddenly changed and artists are being empowered now to have more, uh, more resources than ever. So I would like for our community to understand that creativity is valued and, and put in position uh, our youth and our, and our graduating classes position people to be able to express themselves, create the things that they want to create and be compensated for it. I think that there's a, that there's a sudden, uh, we have, we suddenly have more leverage than prior to this. And if we can just utilize that leverage to begin to make systems accountable to us or begin to make, uh, uh, make the situation easier, make success easier. And that's really, that's all I'm trying to do with my life personally is just try to figure out ways. There's a, 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 I say all types of genius because specifically there are different types of genius. There are people who are exceptional at different things. And, and for the last, I would say hundred years, but 500 years, maybe we've been, we've been attempting to create this one single type of person. And the, as Metropolis talked about it, it was one of the first films. It was a silent film. And in this silent film, luxury had been uh, get, saving for, saved for the rich and the rich were able to experience nature while everyone else marched down into this machine and worked to feed this machine. And now uh, we've had that situation where the majority of people had to become automatized and go in, in and out to things that they didn't like to do or do things that they didn't want to do to feed themselves, including myself. And I would just like to change that narrative that you have, that you are special, that there's something valuable that you can bring to this world. And that, um, that once you do, you'll be valued and be compensated for that. 
and I want to create situations that do so. That's beautiful. And I really hold really close to similar values or the same values. I think alongside that, I really would love for people to uh, move forward and not be afraid to experiment. You know, it's it's not about having the completely fully, fully formed idea all the time or even most of the time. And I see a lot of people, you know, when they're talking about not even being an artist, but being a collector or any number of things, it's like, well, I won't, I, I can't call myself an artist. I don't, I don't, I'm not that good at this. Or I'm not that good at that. Like everyone, everyone was, was not as good as they are now at some point ago. Um, I recently this month decided to um, pick up the violin. I've never played a violin a day in my life. And, but it's an instrument I always wanted to play. And I said, well, I don't plan to make a profession out of it, but why shouldn't I just buy a violin and learn how to play it? Because that's what I want to learn how to play. And I feel like if we were to look at things, even things that are the artistic profession, the art world is one world or industry where you could be in any industry and be in the art world. I have friends who are attorneys in the art world that, you know, again, you know, blockchain, cryptocurrency, curators, uh, visual artists, performance artists. And so I feel like I didn't know what a curator was until I was 25, you know, and I've curated exhibitions all over the world. And so it's, it's not too late. And I, and I argue that both for youth, um, general, you know, people my age, and then even people, I have conversations with my father, you know, who's considering getting into framing after having been a, a fabricator and welder and carpenter for decades, my entire life. And so I'm really excited and really would like to change the narrative about like, not just what we can do and if we can do it, but when it's possible for us to enter those spaces as well. We can do it at any time. And if whenever we're ready, the, the support is there and we should be ready to move forward. Yeah, and I'll just, uh, you know, quickly chime in here. Um, you know, one of the things I mentioned earlier on was that my company, Art World Conference, evolved into a new um, entity called Art World Learning. It's an online education platform that delivers uh, financial literacy to people in the creative field. We're specifically focused on visual and performing artists, but also designers and what we call cultural producers, which is basically a catch-all terminology that we use that sort of deals with everyone in the art world ecosystem, whether you're a curator or, you know, you're, you're running your own gallery or you're even an art handler. It really doesn't matter. It's just anyone is working in that space that might consider themselves a freelancer or a self-employed individual. And uh, we're giving people um, very, very important information on everything from taxes to intellectual property, uh, to how to create a budget, how to create a business plan, or whether or not you even need a business plan, um, looking at credit and debt and negotiation and contracts. And all of this information is being um, delivered by way of video uh, with supplementary learning materials is being presented by a very diverse group of people who are experts in these different areas. Um, we launched Art World Learning last, um, pretty much last December, and in the past um, nine months, we've uh, onboarded about 20 colleges across the United States uh, with the goal of tripling that number in short term. Um, schools like School of the Art Institute Chicago, uh, sorry, RISD, uh, Yale, uh, Penn State. So what's happening is that these schools are using our platform um, to offer this information to their students and alumni um, at this stage for free so that they can um, really uh, kind of uh, dot the I's and cross the T's in terms of the financial aspect of their life. And um, this is something I'm incredibly passionate about because I believe that um, not knowing um, about how to manage your personal finances, I think is such a tremendous uh, detriment to uh, the, the, the long-term sustainability and viability of one's career. And uh, as much as I'm into art for the sake of its, its beauty and its emotional impact, I believe that um, someone who's committed themselves to a life in art, particularly in a country like America, has to also commit themselves to being financially aware. Very exciting. Thanks so much for sharing that. I'll be calling you to talk about that after this. <laughs> Um, we brought up a member of our audience. Uh, Andre, would you introduce yourself and 
uh, ask what questions do you have of the panelists, please? My name is Andre Malcolm. I'm from New York City. Uh, I've been living in California for the last 10 years. Um, I've been an artist, watercolor painter. I do watercolor. Uh, I mainly um, do tattoos, Japanese style tattoos that I learned in, in the Bronx um, from one of my friends. And uh, I was just basically listening to, to what um, uh, Dexter was saying and um, how he lived in Japan and that, that intrigued me. And I followed uh, Pigment for a long time. So uh, I just wanted to say hello and um, everything so far sounds really great. Um, I also, um, one of my side businesses after doing art for so long, 20 years of tattooing and then uh, having having my aunt and my uncle as art teachers in my life, which I never really had to do to go to art school. I was able just to do art on my own just by watching them, learning from them. And uh, and then I, I started my own ink company. So I make actual black uh, for artists around the world. So that's another brand. And I think that's something that also comes from art too, where uh, you're, you will have another source of income um, and be really creative with that. The science behind pigment and actual black itself and how diverse the color black is. So uh, that's something that I just wanted to share. And there's other fields of art that's out there uh, that um, that you can um, try and master and put your time into. And uh, tattooing is one of them. Thank you, Andre. Thank you for sharing that. I wanted to make the group aware that one of the initiatives that Pigment started after our founding in 2018 uh, was the celebration of Black Fine Art Month. Uh, when we started the organization, we did a lot of research and we found that there did not exist a Black Fine Art Month. Uh, so we acquired the domain name, we declared October as Black Fine Art Month, and we began our programming in 2019, a year ahead of the pandemic. Uh, we did mostly virtual programming in this year with a group of programming, both in person, uh, virtual, and with partners like uh, Janice Bond, who has been working with us to kind of spread the word about Black Fine Art Month. And last year, she hosted a wonderful virtual seminar with the Rue Collective, a group of women artists and printmakers out of Houston, Texas. And we're going to do that again this year. We're going to do some different programming with her this year. We picked a theme this year to talk about missing history and how artists are going to be the ones to complete the missing history. Uh, we know that just a week, uh, just a, over a week ago, the Jefferson Davis, uh, the memorial came down for Robert E. Lee, I'm sorry, in, in Richmond, Virginia. And that's happened across the country. Uh, Columbus's statue came down here, any number of statues. But we wanted to be thoughtful about it and say, what happens if we add the history that's missing? And the piece you see was created by Chicago artist Gerald Griffin. And it's a bust of Kamala Harris. And he has done three small statues that he is working to have created as monuments that, that can be added to the narrative, to the conversation, and placed in a way that we can tell a full story of history. So I want to encourage all of you to visit our website. We have a special website for Black Fine Art Month, blackfineartmonth.com, and you will see all the programming that we will be doing in October. And this conversation was a lead up to that. So this is one of the reasons we wanted to hold this conversation at this time. But beginning October 1st through the end of the month, we will have all types of programming. Uh, we'll have programming different cities that we're celebrating. So uh, really so pleased that all of you could join us here today. And then I'd like to offer each of our panelists our thank you for being a part of this and then let you go around and kind of offer any last comments that you would like to offer. And Dexter, I'm going to start with you this time. One of the things that drives me forward, and I hope it will um, potentially drive other people forward as well, is the keen sense of history. Um, I spend a, a lot of time uh, 
researching and reading um, about various aspects of uh, not just American history or world history, but sometimes very, very like small and, and minor, <laughs> minor histories to really um, get a better grasp on um, like what is possible. Right? Because most of the stories that have managed to um, stand the test of time are, are stories about people, individuals or groups of people um, overcoming insurmountable odds or, or seemingly insurmountable odds. And I think that when, when I consider the situation um, right now in terms of the, you know, the, the race wealth divide, um, police brutality, and so many other, other things that I'm concerned with, I think that these, these, uh, these things seem like they're insurmountable, but they're actually not. And if there could be focus and strategy put to it, um, I think that we can close the race wealth divide. And I think that we can deal with, um, you know, reconfiguring the way um, black communities are, are policed. And there are a whole host of other things that I'm genuinely interested and concerned with. And, um, and I just think that um, people should remember that, you know, history is still being made. Um, we're not just living on the shoulders of the past. We actually have the ability to shape the world the way that we want it to be. Thank you so much. Very thoughtful. Uh, Janice? You know, I, I really am just sitting on Dexter's words because I align with them so so deeply. I mean, it, history is still in the making every day. My, my father, I, I, I talk about him a lot. We talk every day pretty much. And um, he always says he's like another day, you know, above ground is another day to go get it. And, you know, he's um, a very simple man. I think there's so much value to simplifying life in that way. Um, valuing life more now than ever. I mean, we are here. And there's time and there's opportunity and there are platforms like this um, that really exploded and came into the fold at a time of, of great duress and separation. We were able to come together um, on so many different ways and continue to communicate and share information. And so I really look forward to, you know, people like Israel and Dexter and you and myself and others really utilizing these spaces to intensify and deepen um, connection uh, for spaces of education and evolution um, in various communities. And that's the world that, you know, that's the world I want to live in. And that's the world I want to keep investing in. Amen. In <laughs> um, Israel, you were the way that we started this conversation. You were the person I first met on Clubhouse. So I'd like you to close this out. Well, I'd just like to thank you for creating the space and, um, and pledge my support to your event or to uh, Black Fine Art Month across the October. And uh, this, I, I enjoyed this conversation and the, the viewpoints brought forward. And I just look forward to us um, building bridges and taking, and taking action on some of the subjects that we spoke about today because it's definitely needed, especially within our, especially within our community. You know, um, arts and culture have been uh, part and parcel of urban revitalization plans across this country. Um, what that usually means is bringing in another community into the into our communities to help bring in arts and culture. Well, what if our community chose to go into the Baltimore's and the Detroit's and the Chicago's of this of this country and revitalize our communities by leveraging arts and culture and um, and with with technology added, we we have an, a tremendous amount of power that we can utilize for this purpose. So I just look forward to um, building bonds with anyone uh, um, that's choosing to take on a similar mission. Thank you. I hope this is the first of many conversations that we can have with this group, uh, with the other innovators that I've been so fortunate to meet over this journey of working with Pigment. I cannot thank you guys enough. I want to thank the team at Rivet for capturing this, and we will share 
uh, how we will use this with all of you. Uh, the podcast for Pigman is called Instead of a Blank Canvas, It's a Black Canvas. So please look to hear about that. But I want to thank each of you for your contribution, for your work, for your passion, and for your commitment. And thank you for being here to the audience as well. Thanks to all of you. The original theme music for this podcast has been provided by contemporary jazz and R&B musician Reed. Thank you to Reed, our production partner, Rivet360, and sponsor, Sun Fun U, Mediterranean Voyages, for making this podcast possible.